Thank you. All right, so I'm going to just read up to where we are. Um, so we're now in the justification part of Romans, right? So from Romans 1.18 to Romans 5.21, it's going to be talking a lot about justification. But before Paul can really talk about justification, he needs to explain that everyone's a sinner and they need justification, right? So his, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, he's going to say the universal need of righteousness. Then he's going to break that up into the people groups that we study. So we have Gentiles, and even within the Gentiles, you have the, the cultured ones and then the uncultured Gentiles, and then you have Jews, right? So last time we were going over the pagan Gentile world. I'm sorry, yeah, yes, the pagan Gentile world. Um, let's see. And so the, the revelation of knowledge has come to all men, right? God being the creator has revealed himself in general revelation, meaning the creation around us, so that no man is with, with an excuse. Because um, the wrath of God, he's revealed himself through the creation, and the wrath of God is against two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. So it's not, and then Paul condemns the Gentile world, not just because they don't know, but it's actually willful willful rejection and suppression of God's revelation to them. And we talked about how um, if they respond positively to the light that they have written in their hearts, God would reveal more to them. But they willful reject it and suppress it. Um, and then verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, we see sort of the steps, right? They did not glorify him as God. They failed to give him thanks. So then their minds become futile, right? And that futile thinking corrupts their minds, right? Their, their thinking becomes futile. The futile is what corrupts their minds. <coughs> Excuse me. And then they profess themselves to be wise, but in fact are fools, right? And, and in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge, right? So if you have no fear of the Lord, no respect, no gratitude towards the Creator, you really don't have true knowledge, true wisdom. You think you do, but you're actually, in fact, false and foolish, right? You might have aspects of the truth, because the truth are everywhere, but you do twist that truth to something to fit your idolatry or fit your ideas. So they profess themselves to be wise, they become fools, and then they redirect that worship that's inherently inside of every one of us to other things, right? To another object, the, the creation. They'll create something. Either they'll elevate a man or they create, you know, this Baal type thing or whatever, come up with religions to worship instead of God. Um, and then that that's what leads to idolatry, right? And as a result of that idolatry, meaning worshiping something else rather than the creator, it will lead to sexual immorality. That's degeneration devolves and it's a progression of sinfulness right and Mike um, it, it progresses into more sinfulness um, and then God even more so will then give them up to a debased mind so that's a judgment God's judgment is okay here you go more or less now suffer the consequences within yourself of sin right and so he he doesn't just let them go to wherever he actually places them from under his control now to their own devices and their own ways 
and they are going to suffer the consequences. And I think we can clearly see in our own culture, when we reject God, we see that progression, right? And sexual immorality, in a heterosexual sense, started that way. And then if it doesn't get stopped, and we'll talk about this actually today, it will move into homosexuality, and then it will move into all kinds of things. That's sort of the progression that occurs in the sexual immorality stage or arena. So God gives them up to a debased mind, and then this, this is what Paul is saying deserves condemnation, God's condemnation, God's wrath. It is there. So that's how we left last week. We didn't do a, a verse 32, so let's look at verse 32, um, and then I'll summarize sort of that whole part, and then we'll move on to chapter 2. So if some, does anybody have any questions or comments or thoughts so far? It's a lot. I, I want to say that as we go through some of these verses, we have to be careful not to like uh, isolate that verse because we're, there's going to be some difficult things coming up that might be contrary to what the whole gospel says, right? The whole scripture says. So just keep in our minds that we're taking a whole picture. We can't just take one verse out of context and apply some biblical principles that way. And I'll, I'll, when we get there, I'll, I'll kind of go through that, but just keep that in mind. So think of Romans as a court case, like Paul is a lawyer presenting uh, on behalf of God the judgment against mankind. Um, and so he's spelling out these things as to why they're worthy of condemnation. Okay, so if someone would read verse 32, Okay, so this reiterates that pagans committed these, the, the sins of idolatry and immorality even though they had some experiential knowledge of God and knew his law. And the, the pagans knew their, the law of God in their heart, not the Mosaic law as the Jews do, but there is a law written on the heart of man. Um, and so they do these things even though they understood it. Um, you know, we all know that our conscience speaks to us. Um, as believers, now we have an, a, an awakened consciousness, meaning that the Holy Spirit is within us, and we are, our conscience will grieve us if we upset the Holy Spirit or we do things that are troublesome to them, Holy Spirit. But even before we were believers, our, we have a conscience inside of us that tells us, uh, you know, things that we shouldn't do. We know, all cultures know you don't murder, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't do these things because it harms another person. You don't have to have the biblical account to say that that's right or wrong. All cultures know that. That's evidence that God's law is written on the hearts of man because no, no chemical process or physical interaction, synapses, can, can create what morality is, right? No amount of serotonin or adrenaline or these chemicals in our brain can dictate what is right or wrong. All they, you know, and Grace and I were talking about, the mind is what controls the brain like a computer. The mind is what tells the brain what to do to make our bodies physically move, right? So there's a difference between the, the mind, which is spiritual, and the brain, which is physical. Um, okay, so the Gentiles are worthy of divine judgment, even though they don't have the law of Moses. It's because they willfully 
rejected and did not submit to the God that was revealed to them. So that warrants uh, God's condemnation. So that first section, verses 19 through 32, makes four points um, about these pagans. Um, and these pagans are what some versions might call barbarians. I don't know if your version has a barbarian. These are the uncultured sort of Greeks. So even within Greek ideas, they separated those who were common or unlearned or uneducated or uncultured as pagan. They called them pagans. But as we're going to see, Paul's going to say, no, you're no different, right? You have a form of righteousness that you try to follow, but you're just as hypocritical. You're hypocritical because you condemn them. So we'll see that. Um, so the four points of verses 19 through 32 of the pagans is that they had a degree of knowledge. It was revealed to them. That's verse 19. Um, and so for a while, they knew the truth experientially, verse 21. Um, then third, they knew they were willfully refusing this knowledge, in verse 28. And then fourth, they understood to some degree the results of their rejection. Um, so in their rejection of the truth, they rejected the truth of God and they changed the glory of God into idolatry. And that's how we get various forms of religions is idolatry. Um, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then they gave up the knowledge or willfully refused it after, uh, of God after evaluating. They did not want to submit to God's authority and supreme being over their lives. So with that pagan description of their condemnation, their worthy condemnation under God's wrath, we can actually extrapolate some principles of how God deals with Gentile nations. Um, so we can see in many cultures outside of Judaism, say, when humanity begins to reject the knowledge of God, it loses this proper concept of him, right? It's idolatry. They change it to something else. And what happens, they generally lower God to their own image, right? That they, they try to put God in a box or try to describe him as he isn't, but as they like him to be, basically, right? Um, the degrading of God's position will lead to just uh, you, them rationalizing or justifying their own actions or own behaviors, such as sexual immorality. Um, so promiscuity or this preoccupation, like I was saying, with sex in a heterosexual sense becomes widely spread all around the culture, sinful behavior, right? And if we study Thessalonians and Corinthians, that's one of the primary things that Paul t tells them is abstain from sexual immorality because their culture was so in inundated with it. So it starts with uh, you know, fornication and adultery in a heterosexual sense, and then it becomes widespread sinful. It progresses um, into more human depravity, which is homosexuality, which is, uh, you know, a move from natural sexual action to unnatural uh, sexual relations. And then as a result of that continuing progressing, God gives humanity up to the depravity of, of its desires, right? And so, like we were saying, we, we look at our culture and our society now and we are scratching our heads about how nonsensical the transgender thing is, right? I mean, that's just an example of our culture. It is a nonsensical thing to accept that a man can just think he's a woman and a woman can just think they're a man, right? It's, it's, it's nonsensical. It's a depravity of the mind. It's a debasement of the mind. And it's a judgment of God because 
they have progressed further down that God says, okay, this is going to be the result, right? And we, we can see as a culture, it's a very slippery slope. You can go, if you can go from trans claim those things, a man can just think he's a woman and vice versa. Anything will go, you know, anything will go. Bestiality will come part, come onto our scene, you know, little children having all these things with, with adults and all, you know, all these nonsensical depraved actions and thinkings um, are not rooted in fact or reality. It's a figment of an imagination, right? It's evidence of a depraved mind. It's evidence of, of, of you know, God just giving them over to a reprobate thinking, right? It's evidence in our culture. So we can see that progression that for a few decades we've had a very loose sexual um, um, tolerance for heterosexual things. It moved into homosexual things, and now it's moving into even more and more crazy things. Hi, Susan. So we can see that in our own culture, right? <clears throat> okay, so this section, six lessons. There's a seat right over there. Yeah. So in thinking about Gentiles and pagans and our, our unbelieving friends and family, six lessons can be learned here. So there's enough knowledge, right, available in nature to appreciate that there is a God, right? There is a creator. He is out there. He's supreme. He's divine. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. The one who creates the sun has to be more powerful than the sun and so forth, right? So there's enough knowledge. Second, there's the, the, that the, gen, the, re, the revealing of general revelation that, like I said, God is wise and powerful. So there is a God. He's both wise and powerful. This is insufficient, however, to save, but it should lead you to think about things, right? To say who is, what is, how is, why is, these things, right? These, it should lead you to these questions. Um, so man... Be, being led into those questions has to come up with answers, right? And that's how we get these religions and these belief systems, is that man is coming up with answers to these questions. Um, but the, develop, <coughs> the rejection of the Creator God is always a devolving answer, meaning that the development of religions is always in a downward um, aspect. It's never upwards to truth, it's always away from truth because it's, it's corrupting the image of God in their minds and bringing God down to their, their own uh, mindset, right? Because we, we can see that man-made religion doesn't start with like polytheism, like you know, multiple gods, and then ultimately ends down into monotheism. It actually starts with, oh, there's a creator, there's one creator, supreme being, but it doesn't quite fit in my ideas, so I start looking and adding to it, and, and adding more and adding more. So you have this polytheistic idea that there's gods in the trees, and gods in the sea, and gods in all these things, right? So it always degrades and devolves away from a personal uh, relationship with the Creator God. So we know that, fourth, God will punish sin, right? And sometimes the way He punishes sin is allows sin to increase. 
right? It becomes even greater sin to enter in. As a result, cultures and societies explode or implode, right? Um, so even, even the most depraved of men still have a knowledge of God because it's written, the conscience of man bears witness, right, to God. Um, and we'll, we're going to see that again here shortly. Um, but knowledge by itself does not keep man or human being from committing sins worthy of judgment and that. So just, just knowing that there's a God, because we have a culture too that says, oh yeah, I believe in God, right? But I'm good. I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm not this or I'm not that. <clears throat> so knowledge itself about God doesn't create in you a proper response to sin. Those are the six sort of lessons from that section. Yeah? Good? <laughs> okay, one verse. We took one verse. All right, so now let's look at uh, chapter 2, and now we're going to talk about the cultured Gentile world. So he turns to the... You went from the barbar barbarians, or the uncultured Greek world, and then he's going to show here that societal status, social status is irrelevant, right? It doesn't make any difference whether you're from the culture or the unculture, whether you're from, we're going to see from Jew or not Jew, um, that they're all under the, God, under the judgment of God. Um, so Paul understood that, that in the Greek world they had an, a, a, a distinction. So that's why he's addressing these two groups distinctively. And <clears throat> does anybody have a version that says barbarians in with them, they don't really call that anymore, I guess. Um, okay, so let's. Um, these cultured Greeks, or the leaders, or the you know the educated ones, are under the pronouncement of guilt too, as we see. So let's read verse one of chapter two, if you would. <clears throat> Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment. Okay, so <clears throat> whenever the word therefore is there, it's connecting the previous section of the previous verse, right? So this connects the passage right before it, 32, 132. Um, so all that Paul said is basically saying, therefore you have no excuse also because you're just like them. You do the same things essentially. Every one of you judges. These people are judging with this self-righteousness of these uncultured Greeks. Uh, but they are, they are, um, you know, just as guilty because the cultured Greeks might have agreed with Paul about these pagans, right? And said, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. They're crazy. They, you know, they believe in silly things. They might agree. But then Paul says, well, wait a second. You're just as guilty as them, basically, right? So they might have approved God's judgment on these barbarians, but... Paul says, no, you're not any better, basically, right? So by judging others, they actually condemn themselves of the same sin. They may not be as guilty as on, on a scale um, of repressing the truth, but they were guilty of applying God's judgment to them when they're still under God's judgment, right? Because they're not saved, but they're taking the divine judgment on the barbarians and not applying any divine judgment on them. That's kind of what Paul is saying. So they exercise, the cultured Greeks would exercise this moral judgments um, on these others and 
Paul is saying you're just under you're just as much under condemnation as as they are that you're judging them for and we see that even in, again in our culture because we have this self-righteousness out there and this you know this uh, this idea that um, people are more good or more moral because they tolerate such and such and so and so so they play this virtue signaling game right by saying I'm more virtuous and more tolerant and better than you bigoted Christians because I'm not a racist or whatever you know all these stupid things they say um, they exercise this moral judgment meaning that they know there's a morality they know that there's a truth there's false there's right wrong good or bad but they project it on somebody else without putting it on themselves right that's what Paul is basically saying and that's what uh, Christians say to me all the time. You know, like, you can't, how can you judge me and tell me what I'm doing is wrong when, you know, doesn't the Bible say it? Do you even think it? That you're doing the same thing? I've heard that before. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, and well, the judgment sides, it kind of swings both ways as far as the. Yeah, know, yes, for sure. Well, we're not the, we aren't the judges, right? I mean, I, I could probably say with confidence that none of us go and just walk around judging people, you know? We don't, it, what judges them is God, and we're just representations of God, so they think we're judging them. We're like, I'm not judging you. I'm just as much of a sinner as, I, as you are, you know? I'm just saved by grace. But that's, that's the response, is that they think you're self-righteous or whatever but in fact it's not us it's god's judgment in there's their own conscience really their own conscience burns within them that feeling or that that moral the code of breaking the moral law that they look at you and say you know who are you you're like i don't i didn't do anything you know it's it's a sad state but that's that's basically what paul is saying is that is that they are guilty too um okay so now, 2 through 16, the principles of judgment. Here we're going to see that Paul, again, think about Paul as being in a court. He's going to use a method or strategy of argument. Um, and it would be one where, a, like a philosopher, is talking about philosophical things. And he would, he's going to basically take the approach of both sides, right? So he's going to argue from one side of a position and then argue from the other side of a position. So that's, that's uh, how Paul will be addressing this next section. He's going to kind of put um, questions in the mouth of a critic or somebody who's like a devil's advocate, you know, kind of asking those things. Um, and then he's going to answer them. Um, and so he's going to spell out three principles of judgment in this manner. So the first principle of judgment is in verse 2, and it's that God's judgment is according to truth. So let's read verse 2, if we would. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Right. <laughs> Pretty good. Um, so truth is the standard by which God will judge. Um, so he's applying this to Greeks. Now you think of the, these cultured Greeks are the educated ones, right? The, the Plato, the Aristotles, the Socrates, these kind of guys um, that were academians right they they had this idea of what is truth and what is right and what is wrong and all these things so paul applies this fact to the cultured greeks um, stating that they should have 
drawn certain conclusions from the reasonings of their mind, such as when you see there is a creator God, again, it should ask, you ask questions, right? But these guys, the Plato, the Aristotle, the Socrates, all these guys, they didn't reach the truth conclusions, they reached their own conclusions, right? It's the reasonings of their minds, but they failed to give God the glory, right? So then he's going to elaborate a little bit more on this, verse 3. So Paul, uh, if you read verse 3. So when you, who, when you're a human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's, ju God's judgment? Right, so like we said, these, these cultured guys, these educated academians, they agreed and even would cheer the fact that Paul is saying to the barbarians or the uncultured that God's judgment is on them, right? They cheered him on and agreed, but yet they themselves practiced the same sins. Their, their conclusion should have been that they too were guilty of God. So he's con Paul is condemning this academians or these cultured guys that they too are guilty before God. Just as much as you agree that the pagans are, you are too. So he describes that even for the, further, their shortcomings in verse 4, if you read verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? So right, so here he's pointing out that um, they failed, these academians or these cultured guys, they failed to, to appreciate the riches of God that were available to them, right? So it's kindness, you know, so kindness, you could say the hydrological cycle, the fact that we have a sun that comes up every day and that, that sun, and then it gives us rain and it gives us food and it gives us all these standard laws, right, which we can live by. Right? We know that because the sun's going to come up, when we get up in the morning and go to where we go, we're going to see. We're not going to have you know, chaos and all these things. So that's kindness in the sense that the, the life cycle continues on of, of food and, and, and water and all the things that we would need. Um, and that God has been delayed in punishing um, humanity for this debased mind. Right. So that's, that should lead you to see, well, why hasn't God judged if it's so bad why haven't God judged us yet that should lead you to say well he's tolerant and kind right and he's and he's patient to to delay punishment that goodness should lead you to repentance is what Paul is saying God's kindness God's goodness should lead you to repentance that he's been long suffering with you personally right yet just like the barbarians of chapter 1 the culture Greeks fail to recognize that and to repent as a result, right? So then we see the result. Read verse 5. But because of your hard and impatient heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath for self-righteous judgment will be revealed. All right, so your hard and impenitent heart that God is described as storing up wrath, right, for himself because, um, I'm sorry, the Greeks are, are described as storing up wrath for themselves um, because their heart is characterized by being hard and unrepentant, right? The, the impenitent is just unrepentant. Um, 
So it's a lack of understanding God's grace and God's goodness, because that should produce in you a repentant heart, one that says, thank you for not judging me, basically, right? Um, so as a result of, of being hardened and stubborn against that, they're storing up wrath that will come at a designated time. And he even tells us it will be the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, right? Um, so that's the tribulation. Paul, 2,000 years ago, is talking about the day of wrath, which has yet to come. That, that tribulation um, will be the judgment of human sin. So God's kindness, God's goodness, has been delayed in punishing up, up until this time, this future time. Um, so the revelation of the righteous judgment of God that refers to the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes back, you know, the book of Revelation, Revelation means revealing, and it's just a revealing of Jesus Christ, right? That's the name of the book, the revealing of Jesus Christ, revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing of that righteous judgment of God, the second coming of Christ, and that will occur at the end of the tribulation. So God is going to judge the cultured Greeks according to the standard of truth that they have failed to appreciate and to attain. So that's the first principle. The second principle, are we good so far? Any thoughts? So God's judgment is according to truth. The second principle we're going to see is verse 6. Read verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Right. So God's judgment will be rendered to each person according to their works. Um, doesn't that, does that sound strange to you? Because <laughs> yeah. we're not saved by our works, right? Exactly. Are we judged by our works? He's not talking about saved people. He's not talking about right. saved people. Right. So it's very, that's exactly right. We have to, this is not talking about justification, right? right. Um, this is talking about um, those whose works are those who think their works will get them somewhere basically right um, we will be judged according to our works but it's not for salvation or justification right um, so it's really about profession and practice right it's not between faith and works but it's profession and practice um, we know this a person if you're saved a, your works will come out as a result of you being saved, right? Some are going to be easier said, seen than others, but nonetheless, um, works are the fruits of God in you, right? You're, you're the fruit of Christ in you is the good works that he does in you, right, as a result of being saved. Um, so a person who has been justified by faith should produce certain works, right? However, this does not mean that a believer will automatically do so. We know believers who don't, each one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know ourselves that we don't do produce good works all the time for sure. Um, so Paul emphasizes that in 1 Corinthians 3, that there will be some believers at the judgment seat of Christ, right, who have nothing to show for their spiritual life, right? They're still saved, and he says, yet it's through fire, right? It's all the things you thought get burned up, but you're still there, right? And so us, you know, trying to figure out who's better or not is kind of a silly, silly thing. But nonetheless, there are those who, who don't have the outworking of fruit easily seen, 
but they will be, they're still saved, but yet as through fire, they may not have a position of honor. I mean, this goes into the doctrine of rewards. They may not have a position of honor or authority, but they are in the kingdom of heaven, right? Um, so a lack of works does not prove a lack of justification, right? A lack of works doesn't prove a, 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 a lack of justification. We cannot earn salvation, um, and we're going to see that that's Paul. He's going to hammer that out in chapters 3 and 4, what salvation is. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. But So he's saying here, salvation should produce certain works, and these works are evidence of a person's faith. But the wicked, the unbelievers, will be punished on account of and according to their works, right? Um, the righteous, on the other hand, rewarded not on account of their works, but according, according to their works, right? We're not saved because of the works. We will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ with us for our works, but our works don't, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of saying the same thing over and over again, but we get it, right? That's what Paul is basically saying. Because he's saying the wicked will show failure on all accounts of all works, right? No faith without, no faith with works, no works, no nothing was, was beneficial to them at all. In all directions, they will be found to be failures, right? Um, so it's talking about law, not the gospel in a sense. It emphasizes the principle of judgment for those who have never heard the gospel or have heard it but rejected it. So we're going to see we're going to see in verses 14 and 15 that it will be explained a little bit clearer. But that's that's kind of one of the verses I was saying that we have to be careful not to just take an isolated part out and understand what the context is here. So as a result of this um, judgment according to each one's works, we see the results for the unbeliever. So let's read verses seven and eight. Okay, so does that sound weird to you? To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor? Does it say anything about salvation or do it say anything about faith right there, right? To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, we, he will give eternal life. That should sound weird to us, right? But for those who are self-seeking then do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So, in the book of Romans, Paul Paul emphasizes that salvation is not by works at all, right? No work will result in salvation. So we have this verse in 7 that says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So the best way to understand this, and there's all kinds of commentary and, and, and ideas about this, the best way to understand this is it is about unbelievers, but it's a hypothetical question, right? A hypothetical result in the sense that if an unbeliever were to pursue the goal of perfect living and, and succeed, <clears throat> he would receive eternal life, right? Um, <clears throat> one of the scholars says that the Greek, if paraphrased, would say something like this, quote, to those who with patient endurance in good work, meaning as an outward lifestyle, 
seek for the glory, honor, and incorruption God alone can give, meaning as the object of their inward motivation, he will render eternal life. <clears throat> so basically it's saying if you can live a perfect life according to the law, you will have, he will grant you eternal life, right? That's the hypothetical question. The reality is though, what? You can't, right? It's an impossibility. And so that's, that's what Paul is basically saying here is that, yes, you can gain eternal life if you live to the law exactly perfectly and only one man did, right? It's why Christ had to come and he came as a man to fulfill the law so that we could have his righteousness and we would take upon our unrighteousness, right? So that's the idea is that God's principle is such that to those who with patient endurance in good work seek for the glory, honor, and incorruption God alone can give, they will get eternal life. The reality is you cannot do it. That's what it is. So that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Does that make a little more sense at least? Good, because that, that's, that's a tough verse. <laughs> um, so then verse 8 presents the contrast though, right? The unbeliever who is self-seeking and rejects the truth and follows evil will be judged with wrath and indignation. We're going to see in chapter 3 that the idea of perfect living is hypothetical. It's this goal of the Pharisees and, and man to live a, you know, you think of Gandhi and, and Buddha and all these guys who try to reach this stage of enlightenment by doing all these things. Their goal is there. Paul is saying, yeah, good luck with that. You know, you're never going to make it, you know. But you, the, the attainment is there, but you're never going to make it because you start already in the negative. You already start as a sinner, right? There's no chance. Okay, um, so although an unbeliever could theoretically attain eternal life or completely following God's righteous law, 100%, as James says, you are guilty of the whole thing if you commit one, right? Um, it's an impossibility, right? So the simple fact that he will make later as well is that salvation cannot be earned by works but must be gained by grace through faith. Um, so we're going to see that just constantly emphasized later on. So Paul then is saying, there, this is very clear, there could be no question then that God shows favoritism of any kind to anybody, right? Each man faces an impartial judge who will determine whether life was lived in pursuit of God's glory or in self-seeking unrighteousness. Um, so a question should be this, if the law is the standard of righteousness and the standard of judgment and the standard of truth, how can God treat the pagan who doesn't have the law equally? If, if God shows no partiality, right? No special favoritism. He gave the law to the Jews, but the pagans don't have the law. How does he judge them according to the law? Right? That should be a question that we're asking. Remember this strategy that Paul is using to present this position? He's going to take both sides, right? Say, okay, this, well, how about this, right? So that's what's happening here. Um, won't the absence of the law to judge him allow an excuse for the pagan, right? Can I escape God's law because I didn't even know the law, right? Well, Paul says no, because though the pagan is without the biblical revelation, right, meaning the law of Moses, um, he is not outside of the, revel the general revelation of God, right? We talked about that general revelation of God. 
and they are a law to themselves. Like we said, every man has a conscience, right? It's a law in their heart. Um, so we're actually going to see that this is going to be answered. The question is, how does the pagan without the Bible have the knowledge of God's will? Um, are they lost because they're without the knowledge of the Bible and Christ's gospel? Or are they lost because of their willful disobedience, right? Yeah. That's the question we should ask. Why is the heathen lost, or why is the pagan lost, or why is the unbeliever lost? Is it because they don't have the Bible, or is it because they are willfully suppressing the truth, right? So let's read the next couple of verses. Um, and this should kind of, these verses should point you to Romans 1.16, which we hammered in Acts. Paul always went to the Jew first, right? The gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's for the Jew first. It's the power of God, right? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Well, it's the same aspect, the same principle can be applied to both the gospel, the judgment, and the blessings to the Jew first and to the Gentiles, right? Um, so now, 116 talked about the gospel to the Jew first. Verses 9 and 10 are going to speak about the curses and blessings to the Jew first. Um, so it's, it's to the Jew first is an expression that says that God's gospel, God's cursings, God's blessings can be allocated to the Jew and then to the, the Gentile. So if someone would read verse 9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Okay, so it's that same tribulation and distress for every human being who is not saved by faith, who has not lived up to God's perfect righteous law, tribulation and distress will come to them. God is not a part, God is impartial, right? So one reason divine punish, punishment goes to the Jew first is in Isaiah 40. Let's look at Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 and 2. So this verse, if you recognize Handel's Messiah, right? Comfort ye my people, this song's part of that. He left out the last part that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. But that's the, that's the principle there, right? That the Jews, Israel, God's people, will receive from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And it's because of the principle to whom much is given, right? Much will be required. That's in Luke 12, 48. The Jews are the covenanted and chosen people um, because they have been recipients of the greater revelation, right? God spoke to prophets, spoke to Moses, all Jews. Christ was born as a Jew. Um, they therefore have greater responsibility. With that greater responsibility comes a risk of greater judgment, right? Failure to fulfill their greater responsibility carries with it more severe judgment and punishment. And we will see that will occur in the Great Tribulation to the Jew as well, right? Um, the result of God's wrath and indignation will be tribulation, troubles, and anguish like none has ever seen before. 
but it's first to the Jew and then it's to the Gentile. We can't end on that, so let's end on verse 10, which is a blessing. So let's read verse 10. So we see the procedure for cursing. Here's a procedure for blessing. The covenantal relationship that God has with the Jewish people mandates that blessings go to them first as well. Remember, we first talked about when we talked about Ephesians, right? 2, 11 through 3, 6. Paul discusses the relationship of the Jewish covenants to the Jews and Gentiles, right? God made those four unconditional covenants um, with Israel, unconditional, the Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic, and then the new covenant. Um, those are God's blessings for the Jews. Those are both physical and spiritual, and they're mediated through these four covenants. But there's a fifth covenant only made to the Jews, right? The Mosaic law was only given to the Jews. We are not under the Mosaic law. That was a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will do this. If you don't do this, I will do that. All the other covenants are I, God says, I will do, I will do, I will do. So there is a Abraham, land, Davidic, and new covenant, and then the Mosaic covenant was for the Jews first, which was temporary and conditional. Um, and it, but one of the main reasons was it served, the law served as a middle partition, right? The wall, remember the veil that was there? It separated Jews and Gentile, was that middle wall of partition, right? And what we know when Christ died, the day that he died, that hour he died, it was rent in two, right? It was torn in two, so that there is no more middle wall of partition. And that was to keep the Gentiles away from enjoying the spiritual blessings that God had given to the Jews, right? But now by Christ fulfilling the Mosaic law, it, it gets rid of that middle partition that Gentiles can now partake of spiritual blessings, not physical blessings, but spiritual blessings of the Jews, right? And so we have to be careful to not be overtakers of Jewish blessings, but partakers, right? We are spiritual partakers of the blessings that God gave to his covenant people. We're not overtakers. We don't, we don't take those blessings and put them to us, the physical blessings, right? And that's how we get into all kinds of, um, uh, what do you call it, um, post-millennial theology and how we're, it's the church's responsibility to create the world to be this great place to present as a bride to Christ and that it's the church's responsibility to convert governments to a theocratic kingdom so that Christ can come back. That's how you get into all kinds of mess because they, they mix the covenantal blessings that God gave to Israel and when they say, oh, well, it's ours now, so we have to do these things, right? We're replacement theology. We are partakers, not overtakers. Uh, before the middle wall of partition was broken, Gentiles, in order to enjoy the spiritual and physical blessings, had to become Jews, right? Proselytes, right? Okay, good? Man, go by so fast. Okay, any, any, any thoughts? It's kind of it's like Tetris, you know, you're like putting these little pieces in this little here. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, just so grateful. We're thankful. We are grateful and thankful that you breathe life into us individually and personally, and that we responded to that light, and that you came in and gave us faith, and you gave us 
sanctification. You gave us salvation. You're just, you've justified us. You're sanctifying us. And you will future glorify us. Lord, let us just be grateful and thankful that you continue to do those things. We ask for discernment. We ask for wisdom. We ask that we would rightly understand your word. So, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us, that we would not create an idea that we want, but that we would submit our hearts and our minds to your word and to your truth, and that you would reign supreme in our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to increase in us faith and increase in us a hunger and a thirst to know your word. We pray for the worship service, that as a corporate body together, that you'd be pleased with the sound of our hearts and our worship and our under, excuse me, understanding of your word. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we, name, we pray. Amen. Yes.